0: Alright, we're continuing together our study of our Confession of Faith in chapter 31, in which we are dealing with the subject of the state of man after death and the resurrection from the dead. Now, previously we looked at paragraph 1, which dealt with the state of the bodies and souls of men after death. More recently, we have been dealing with paragraphs 2 and 3, which deals with the state and bodies the state of the bodies and souls of men at the last day. And so let's read paragraphs two and three together to refresh our memories about where we're at, and then we'll pick up where we left off last time with a little bit of review. Now in paragraph two, it says, At the last day, that is, at the end of this age, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just, by his Spirit, unto honor, and be made conformable to his own glorious body. Now, paragraphs 2 and 3 talk about the fact that there is going to be, on the last day, um, a general resurrection of all people who have died. Uh, We have said back in paragraph 1 that when people die, their bodies uh, go into the grave, whether they're saved or lost, and see corruption. Their souls, of course, go to God and there he makes a disposition of them. The souls of the wicked he sends to hell. The souls of the righteous he receives into heaven. But when Jesus comes back, when the last day is here, then all of those people who are alive and remain upon the earth uh, will be changed and those who Um, have died will be resurrected and the net outcome of this general resurrection and this change that takes place in the lives of those who are living is that all of the saved uh, now stand soul and body before God and all of the lost now stand soul and body before God and there is going to be a final disposition of them. The righteous will go into the new heavens and the new earth, and the wicked will go into the lake of fire. And we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 32. But for right now, what chapter 31 and paragraphs 2 and 3 are talking about is they are talking about that at the time of the general resurrection, everyone is going to have the eternal body that they will occupy that was the body they had while they were here on earth but with different properties which they will occupy for all eternity. Now, the Bible doesn't say a great deal about the kind of body that the lost are going to have and which they are going to uh, inhabit uh, throughout all eternity in the lake of fire. It doesn't say much about it. Now, our confession says that the bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. And what that dishonorable body looks like, we're not told. Uh, Its nature uh, is not described in very much detail. Um, the clearest passage we have is in Daniel chapter 12. Um, so let's look at that a moment. We've looked at it previously. It's, um, <clears throat> if you look in your Old Testament, it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Okay, Daniel is right after the book of Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 12, <clears throat> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. <coughs> okay, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, describing um, the, the end times. It says, at that time shall Michael, that is Michael the archangel, stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time, speaking of the great tribulation before the second coming of Christ. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, speaking of the resurrection, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this phrase, to shame and everlasting contempt, describes uh, the condition and the nature of the resurrected lost. And um, there is another passage uh, that addresses perhaps something of the condition and case of the lost, and that's in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. The Gospel of Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> now Jesus is speaking here of people who are not yet saved and he is telling them that there is nothing no matter how precious that is worth clinging to if it means losing your soul and so in Mark chapter 9 he says in verse 43 Mark 9.43 And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter into a life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. Into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than to having two feet to be cast into hell. Into the fire that never shall be quenched where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Now, as I said, Jesus isn't advocating personal mutilation here. He's just saying that even if a sin is as precious to you as your foot or as your hand or as your eye, It's not worth hanging on to if it keeps you from repentance, if it keeps you from faith in Christ, and it ultimately causes you to be delivered into hell. Nothing is more precious than your soul. Now, when he talks about the condition of those who are in hell, he says with reference to them that their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Now, the fire, we understand, The worm here is uh, something that uh, is is, um, debated as to its meaning as a literal worm. But I think um, when you think about the corruption of a physical body in the grave, um, we know that worms eat them, do we not? And so the idea of having a worm is the idea of corruption, of decay, of uh, degradation, if you will, of what previously was beautiful into something that is ugly. Um, we have all known people who are very, very beautiful or handsome, as the case may be, and uh, we know what happens to them as time passes, even while they're alive, ultimately, their bodies become very dishonorable. We're gonna talk about that some more in a few minutes. And then, of course, when they die, um, their body sees corruption vis-a-vis the process of decay through bacteria and worms and whatnot. So, at the very least, what this worm refers to is the fact that these bodies, which those in hell have, are bodies of corruption. They're not beautiful. They're not attractive. They're not Um, nice-looking. They would be the antithesis of the bodies we would have in heaven, bodies which will be perfect, which will be flawless, which will be beautiful and attractive, and all that God intended our human bodies ever to be. Well, they will have the opposite of that. So... When it says in our confession that their bodies will be raised to dishonor, um, that's about the most we know, uh, as far as I understand in teaching of the scriptures with reference to the natures of these bodies. They are such that they um, live for eternity, and um, they cannot suffer death, but they certainly can suffer pain and sorrow and agony, and misery, and uh, that is is their condition. Um, any questions or observations about that, Mike? Um, well, well people, like, what they do are they, a or, like, what they in, or...? Yeah, the answer is, is that they won't be repentant, and um, they will, uh, I think, continue in their enmity against God. The Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, But the people in hell uh, are not going to have anything like faith or trust or um, any kind of comfort uh, in the thoughts of God. Um, When you look at the rich man in Luke chapter 16, when he's in hell... We don't see him repenting of how he lived. We don't see him expressing any kind of, of uh, positive attitude towards God at all. All we see him doing is being self-centered. He's complaining about, he's tormented in the flame and he wants some relief. And he starts ordering Abraham around. You know, send Lazarus to do this. And... Uh, <clears throat> With reference to his brothers, it would seem that there's a bit of selflessness there. I don't want my brothers to come here. But I think that the reason for that is because uh, those in hell, um, it's not like they don't want people to come there because they're really concerned about those people suffering. They don't want those people to come there because they know the acrimony uh, and the hostility that's going to exist between them. I'm sure this a rich man that was in hell was a horrible negative influence on his brothers. And when his brothers finally got to hell, who would they be accusing uh, for influencing them to come there? And so uh, he didn't want them there because he knew it would just be worse for him if they were there. So no, um, I don't think there's going to be any kind of repentance there. There's going to be. Uh, they're going to be sorry they're there because of the pain and misery that they're suffering. But it's not like they're going to be saying, you know, and it's interesting to note that the rich man didn't ask to be taken into Abraham's bosom or to go over across the Gulf. He just wanted some water to be brought across to his side. So, yeah, I think the answer to your question is no from the data that we have. Good. Good. Any other questions? Would that be like, thief? He, he's sorry he got caught, not so much he's sorry he stole? Right, exactly. Yeah. Sorry got caught, but not yeah. sorry for what he did. Yeah. Exactly. Good. Alright, well let's move on to the happier subject then. And that is the state of the bodies of the just. Um, that are going to be made conformable to the glorious body of Jesus Christ. And uh, the passage we want to look at is 1 Corinthians 15. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. (coughs) Now I want to read to you verses 35 through 44 and then we're going to talk about that passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 44. Now, <clears throat> this chapter deals with the subject of resurrection from start to finish. Okay, And if you want to learn about resurrection, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But we're going to start in the middle, and Paul asks two questions in verse 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Verse 36, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not made alive or quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, as I said in verse 35, Paul anticipates two questions. First of all, in verse 35, how are the dead raised? How is it possible for life to come out of death? Question one. Question two, with what kind of body do they come? What is to be the nature of the body after the resurrection? Now, he answers the first question, how are the dead raised, in verses 36 to 38. And he says, in the same way that when a seed is put in the ground, it sprouts out something better than what it was it dies, the seed dies when it's placed in the ground, and then uh, a body comes up. And if it's an acorn, an oak tree comes up. And if it's a piece of wheat, then a wheat stalk comes up. But the point is, is that when you put a seed in the ground, it dies, but that's not the end of it. Something comes up out of that death, with a form and a life um, that is um, different than what was put in the ground, but that is uh, connected with and comes out of what was put in the ground. And in fact, contains all the elements of it. And so, the question is, how are the dead raised? The answer is... Um, in the same way a seed you put in the ground is raised up. And if, if by putting a seed in the ground and having it die and bring forth new life, if that can happen in the realm of seeds, then it could certainly happen in the realm of the body. And you'll notice that the burial of the body is constantly being referred to as that which is sown, that which is sown, that which is sown. He says it over and over again. And so when we bury a body in the ground, we are not abandoning a body to the earth. We are planting a seed. And that body will sprout back, if you will, to life um, in due time. Now, the second question he asks is, with what kind of body do they come? What is to be the nature of the body after the resurrection? And uh, he says, what will our resurrection body be like? With what body do they come? Will they be the same aging, pain-riddled, disease-prone, decaying bodies that we have now? Will eternity be more of just the same of what we experience here on earth? And the answer, of course, is a resounding negative. Now, notice the illustrations here that he provides. He provides two illustrations an illustration of flesh and an illustration of astronomy. Okay? He's going to talk about different kinds of flesh of animals and he's going to talk about different kinds of celestial bodies the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. Right? Okay? And both of these illustrations make the same point. Now, with reference to the first illustration, he says, <clears throat> in verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. And so, what he's saying is look, in the natural creation, there's a wide variety among various types of creatures. There's a great difference in the organization of the flesh and blood of people versus animals versus fish, versus birds. They all have uniquely different structures of flesh and blood. And if God can organize flesh and blood into so many different kinds of forms here and now, then cannot our future form and organization of our flesh and blood be considerably different from what we now possess? And the answer is, of course, yes. Why should it be assumed that our body in the future will have the exact same characteristics as the one we have now, when in the present time there is such a diversity among already existing creatures? Will it be any great thing for God to reorganize our flesh and blood bodies into a form that overcomes all of its deficiencies due to sin? if he can so organize bodies in such different ways now? And the answer is no, it will be no great thing. And then he brings out this second illustration of from astronomy. <clears throat> and what he asserts in this illustration is that there are no limits as to the actual or possible modification or organization of matter. <clears throat> in verses 40 and 41, he says there's also celestial bodies. Got done talking about animal bodies and how they're all different from each other. And God organizes them all in different ways. And now he talks about celestial bodies. Those in the heavens and terrestrial, the, like the earth. Okay, <clears throat> But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. And then even among the celestial bodies, the sun... The moon, the stars, they all have different levels and degrees of glory. And so what he's saying is that the differences between the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and all of them from one another illustrate just as God is able to create different types of heavenly bodies so he can create different types of human bodies. So these two illustrations both make one point. And it is simply this, it is absurd to assert that if we have bodies hereafter, they must be just like the bodies we have now. Because God has already demonstrated his ability to make all different kinds of bodies with all different degrees of glory, all different kinds of bodies in the animal realm, all different degrees of glory and organization of matter in the celestial and planetary realm. And so, having given these illustrations, the fact that when you put a seed in the ground, it comes to life, the fact that uh, there's all kinds of bodies and there's all kinds of planets demonstrating God's ability to organize matter in any form and way that he sees fit with different degrees of glory, he then says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. And what he's saying is that just like there's uh, life from death, and just like the life that comes up uh, is, is in all different forms, so in the resurrection of the dead, life comes from death, and what comes up is different than what went down into the ground. That's the point he's making here. So he says here, so also is the resurrection of the dead, it is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. Now, our bodies right now are corruptible, but our resurrected bodies are going to be incorruptible. It's going to be the same body with different organization so that it has different characteristics. And though our earthly bodies are subject to decay and disease and death, our resurrection bodies will be free from any of those corrupting influences. Our resurrection bodies cannot become sick. They will not know pain. There will be no dimming of sight. There will be no loss of hearing. There will be no decay of memory. There will be no aching in the joints and the muscles. But rather, our resurrection bodies will be filled with vitality and health, and energy and wellness. Doctors and medicines and hospitals will be useless and they will be unneeded. And so our bodies will be in perfect condition at all times and will be utterly unable to be broken down by anything at any time. And I guess to to use an illustration in the inorganic realm, it's like the difference between gold and iron in salt water. Uh, you know, when, when they go down and they find these sunken Spanish galleons from the 1600s, what's the gold look like when they find it? It's perfect. It hasn't been corrupted at all. But when they find things like the iron cannon and cannonballs and stuff, what what's that like? It's corruptible. And so, in the same way, our bodies uh, are like iron, but they're going to be like gold and not subject to any corruption at all. And um, Secondly, it says, not only will it be sown in corruption and raised in incorruption, but secondly, in verse 43, it says, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. And so our resurrected body will not only be incorruptible, our resurrected body will be glorious. Now, an old and decaying body and a body in the grave is a dishonorable thing. It is humiliating for someone to be trapped in a body that no longer serves the soul in a suitable fashion. Indeed, it is so weak that it elicits pity from those who look upon it. When we see the brain failing in memory, when we see the mouth drooling, When we see that continence is lost, walking becomes staggering, speech is slurred, hearing is lost, sight is watery, skin is wrinkled and sags, the body dishonors itself and its occupant by its decay. But, the resurrection body knows nothing of this dishonor. It has perfect beauty, It has perfect function, and it has perfect agility and coordination. The very life of God is shining out of our bodies in a glory that is resplendent and that is radiant. And so, while our bodies we have now are dishonorable and becoming increasingly dishonorable, it will be raised in glory. It will be a glorious body. be resplendent with beauty and perfection. The third thing that is said here is that the resurrected body will be powerful. Notice it says in verse 43 in the last part, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now in this life, we are acutely aware of our weakness. Our strength at its best is small, and our strength soon disappears as we age. We know a great deal of weariness and fatigue and lack of energy and tiredness and how soon these things overtake us. Our bodies cannot fight off disease. Our muscles are soon exhausted in a few hours of work. We have to constantly eat and sleep to try to restore our strength. You see old people, they're so weak, they can hardly pick up a cup and get it to their mouth. But the resurrection body knows nothing of this. It is filled with energy and strength and power and with capacities that in this life are unheard of. Our Lord Jesus Christ was able to appear and disappear at will, penetrate solid objects with no difficulty, and ascend from earth to heaven in defiance of gravity. We will never be tired, we will never need sleep, and we will never need rest. Strength will flow through us to a degree that we cannot imagine. And anything that our heavenly minds can imagine, our heavenly bodies will have the strength to be able to do. And then fourthly, it says that the resurrected body will be a spiritual body. It says in verse 44, it's sown in a natural body, is raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Now, we find our bodies being a boat anchor to our souls. As the scripture says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it fights against what our souls desire. The natural body with its lusts and passions is antagonistic to the inner man that longs to serve Jesus Christ. And so we have this battle between the body and the soul that's described in Romans chapter 7. But the resurrected body is not like this. It is a spiritual body. That is, it is a physical body, but it is perfectly adapted to the spirit as a perfect instrument for the spirit to express itself in service and worship and obedience to God. So no longer do our bodies war against our spirit. Now they are perfectly adapted to it. They perfectly cooperate with it and are its willing servant delighting in all that the spirit delights in. A spiritual body is not an ethereal body. A spiritual body is one that is perfectly suited to the heavenly realm where worship and service to God are the exclusive activities that will occupy it. So no longer will we feel wretched in our bodies, but in perfect harmony with them. The war will be over between the flesh and the spirit. We're out of time, so we're going to have to stop there, but I think you can begin to see some of the wonder and beauty and delight that our resurrected bodies are going to have and to be. Paul says, in this body we do groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with that which is from above. And so we look for the redemption of our bodies, and that is the great hope that we have as Christians as we face um, our latter years that that is not the end, that that is the beginning of a more wonderful existence of body and soul uh, throughout all eternity than we can possibly imagine uh, here on earth. All right, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have redeemed our bodies. We feel a great many difficulties in our bodies. We feel the weakness and the illness and the pain and the sinfulness and the decay that resides in our bodies. We thank you, Father, that Christ has secured for us a glorious remedy to these problems in his death and resurrection. Thank you, Father, that There is an end to the aches and the pains and the groanings and the decay. And that one day we will be perfect in every respect physically. Thank you for that blessed hope. Thank you for that optimistic future that we have to look forward to. The decay and death is not the end, but the beginning of resurrection to a body that is as perfect as Jesus Christ's. Father, we pray that you might help us then to bear patiently with the weaknesses that we have now, knowing that they are temporary. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.